Chapter thirty one of the Forgery by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty one. If one could really be a spectator, a mere spectator, of what is passing in the world around us, without taking part in the events, or sharing in the passions and the actual performance on the stage, if we could sit ourselves down, as it were, in a private box of the world's great theatre, and quietly look on at the piece which was playing, no more moved than is absolutely implied by sympathy with our fellow-creatures, what a curious, what an amusing, what an interesting spectacle would life present. But we never, in this fashion, see the whole of the play. Sooner or later we jump up on the stage and take a part in the acting, and are inclined, all throughout, to do so, like a child or a savage, or Don Quixote at a puppet-show. From time to time, indeed, we do see a detached scene or two as spectators, and then most exceedingly entertaining it is. Such was the case with Carlo Carlini, as he sat reclining with dignified ease in an old-fashioned leathern chair, with a long, comfortable sloping back, looking alternately at the two faces of Joshua Brown, the peddler, and Mr. Mingy Bowes, when they met, so unexpectedly to the latter. Carlini, as the reader is aware, was totally unacquainted with the peculiar circumstances in which the two now encountered each other, and therefore the expression of their countenances had all the advantage of mystery. Joshua Brown sat gazing upon the newcomer with a look of old Roman sternness, which was not lost upon Mr. Bowes. The expression of the latter was full of surprise, joined with a considerable portion of apprehension, for his first idea was that the peddler was there for the purpose of handing him over to a police officer and bearing testimony against him now knowing himself assailable upon many points mr bowes was by no means fond of police offices the investigations at which are sometimes carried a good deal farther than is either agreeable or convenient to persons of his profession the first effect therefore of the apparition of the peddler was surprise the second was fear but surprise was, of course, over in an instant, being the most evanescent of all things, and fear was soon banished likewise by reliance on his own skill, and on the arms which he believed were in his hands. "'Good evening, Mr. Bowes,' said the peddler, who was the first to speak. "'I did not expect to meet you here to-day when I came in just now. Don't you think it may be a little dangerous, both for you and your friend Sam?' to show yourselves in london so soon after what took place down near frimley i don't know why it should said mingy bows with the most innocent air in the world i have only come to speak to the colonel upon the little business you know of what colonel demanded joshua brown speaking civilly and motioning mr bows to a seat for it was his object to make the fence as he was called say all he had to say and lay open his game as far as his discretion would permit him they were both men of the world however and master mingy having had a great deal of very delicate work to do in his lifetime was not a little cautious he thought indeed that there could be no great harm in answering the question as nakedly as it was put and he consequently replied why colonel middleton to be sure oh colonel middleton said the peddler i suppose i have no business to ask what you want with colonel middleton i should think not 
said Mingy Bows. "'Well, at all events, Colonel Middleton is out,' said Carlini. "'He won't be home from the country till it is late, "'and as soon as he does come home, he's going out again.' "'Ha!' said Mr. Bows, who was fast getting over his apprehensions. "'Nevertheless, I must have a word or two with him, "'and that as soon as possible.' "'You'll find that difficult,' replied Carlini, "'unless you tell me what your business is, "'for he will not see anyone whom he does not know "'without inquiring what he wants.' "'Then he may find he's got into the wrong box,' "'said the fence in a rather menacing tone. "'Box?' said Carlini. "'What does he mean by box?' "'He means what he does not understand himself,' said the peddler, "'leaning his two hands upon the table "'and slowly and deliberately rising from his seat, "'as if he were somewhat stiff and weary. "'He then took a step or two towards the door "'with a heavy, unconcerned air. "'Mr. Mingy Bowes did not at first remark the proceeding, "'but as Joshua Brown got between him and the way out, "'he felt a little nervous.' which nervousness was greatly increased when he saw the peddler put his hand upon the key in the lock. "'What are you going to do?' he exclaimed, starting up. "'I don't choose to be locked in.' "'Sit down, Mr. Bowes,' said Joshua Brown, in a very quiet tone, but very stern, and at the same moment he turned the key in the lock, drew it out, and put it in his pocket. He then walked back to his seat in the same sort of stiff, heavy manner.' There was something very impressive in that sort of semi-limp, and Mr. Bowes sat himself down again, and began playing with the buttons at the knees of his drab breeches, apparently to pass the time while waiting for an explanation. Before he gave one, however, Joshua Brown poured himself out half a glass of wine, and took a sip or two, without the least hurry in the world. But at length he said, "'Now, Mingy Bowes, I dare say you want to hear why I have locked the door.' "'It's only because I've got a word or two to say to you, "'which might, perhaps, make you bolt before you had heard the whole, "'and that would not suit me. "'You're a dealer in marine stores, I take it.' "'Well, I know that,' said Mingy Bows. "'All the world knows that.' "'Good,' said Joshua Brown. "'And you keep a thieves' bank and receive stolen goods "'and run a little tobacco "'and come and go between gentlemen on the lay.' "'and those who take the goods up to London. "'There, don't interrupt me, for all the world knows that, too. "'Many a gold thimble, and many a silver one, too, "'you've helped off the shelf in your day. "'That I know as well as you, and can prove it, too, when I like. "'But there's one thing I desire very much to hear. "'That's to say, what is just now behind that long iron door in your back parlour? "'This was thrown out at random,' simply to create apprehension, for Joshua Brown had not the slightest idea that within that cupboard was to be found anything but stolen goods. It had even more effect than he expected, for Mr. Bowes turned as white as a sheet, thinking, not unnaturally, that some of the most treasured secrets of his dwelling had been by some strange chance discovered. Still, however, caution was uppermost, and he sat as mute as a fish. "'However, that's not the question now,' said Joshua Brown. "'What I want to ask is, what are you up to just now, Mr. Bowes?' "'I don't see what that is to you,' said the worthy whom he addressed. "'I mind my business. You mind yours.' This was the sort of timid boldness of a cat in a corner, but Joshua Brown was not at all moved thereby. 
"'It's a great deal to me,' he answered. "'For the case is this, Mr. Bowes. "'I and another gentleman, a friend of mine, "'were robbed the other night in the lane beyond Knight's Hill. "'Some of the goods you got and sent up to London. "'Some you didn't get.' "'Mr. Bowes gave a start, "'for this was touching the reputation of subordinates. "'Now I and the other gentleman are in the same basket.' "'and I'm resolved that I'll either have the information I want "'or the goods back again, all of them, "'or that you and Sam and the other three "'shall go across the water to botany, "'even if nothing worse comes of it.' "'Mr. Mingy Bowes paused and considered for a single instant, "'and he determined that, in the first instance at least, "'he would try the dogged vein, "'for to know nothing of anybody or anything "'is very often a rogue's first resource.' "'I don't know anything about what you mean.' "'By Sam and the other three, he replied. "'You must be joking, I think. "'And as to myself, I should like to hear what you intend to do, "'for you can't hurt me, I take it.' "'That's easily told,' answered Joshua Brown coolly. "'I intend, if you do not tell me what you are up to, "'to call for an officer, give you in charge, "'and tell the police that, if they choose to send down a gentleman in plain clothes to your place and put out the gentleman you've left there they'll soon get plenty of evidence of your trade and catch the whole gang of you i dare say a sergeant of the force can carry on your business for a week or a fortnight quite as well as you can this was certainly a very frightful announcement to mr mingy bows it was a stratagem he had never dreamed of and his heart sank a good deal but yet for two or three minutes he could not tell how to enter into the sort of compromise which seemed to be offered to him without acknowledging the justice of the charges against him an excuse for yielding without confessing seemed wanting but at length he found one though it was rather lame it would be the ruin of me he said to be kept out of my business for a month in that way come speak out what is it you want me to tell you "'I want to know,' replied the peddler, "'what you are up to, coming hanging about this hotel. "'You know quite well, Mr. Bowes, "'I saw Sam burn a pocket-book belonging to a friend of mine. "'At the same time he told me "'what sort of a story he thought he had got hold of in that pocket-book. "'And, though he was wrong altogether, "'and only making a fool of himself, "'I want to know what lay you and he are upon now.' "'Mingy considered for a minute or two a lie first came up to his lips of course but then he recollected that all parties concerned were likely very soon to hear everything which had passed between him and lady fleetwood it is true he never liked dealing with any but principles but that was a small matter compared with a compromise in the circumstances of grave difficulty which surrounded him and he therefore replied well i don't mind telling you all that if you promise your life and soul not to stop my going back to my own business it was now the peddler's turn to consider for to tell the truth there was a certain feeling of false honour about him which made him shrink from the idea of being an informer but yet he did not like to give out of his own hands the power of restraining mr mingy bowes's actions in the case with which he was then dealing "'Why, this is the case,' said the peddler. "'You see, Mr. Bowes, whenever I promise anything, "'I always do it, come what will. "'And now you are asking me for a great thing "'in return for a small thing. 
I look upon it that I have got you by the neck, Mr. Bowes, as I may say, for I can swear that I saw, at your house, one of the men who robbed me and t'other gentleman, with part of the stolen property in his possession, and that you, knowing it to be stolen, helped him to drive a bargain about restoring it. Now you want me to acquit you of all this, for nothing but telling me something which I shall know before tomorrow's over. That's too much.' It certainly was an awkward way of putting the question, and Mingy Bowes did not at all like the look of things. He had recourse to silence as the best resource, and after waiting a minute or two the peddler proceeded thus. "'I'm inclined to be liberal, Mr. Bowes, and don't wish to be hard upon any man. So, if you'll make a fair offer, I'll promise upon my word of honour not to hurt you.' "'The job is,' said Mingy, with a sudden burst of frankness under the influence of fear, "'that I can do anything you like myself, but I cannot answer for that man, Sam. "'He's a wild, a headstrong devil, worse than a pig, "'for he'll neither be led nor driven, nor pulled back by the leg.' "'So I should judge,' said Joshua Brown, "'and one can't expect any man to, to do more than he can do.' "'Therefore, if you'll promise to tell us all you know, "'and to work with us afterwards in any way I tell you, "'this gentleman here's a witness, "'I'll let you off altogether and not mix you up in the matter at all.' "'It was a hard pill to swallow, "'for although Mr. Mingy did not possess much "'even of that honour which is said to exist among thieves, "'yet he had to remember that his reputation "'as a trustworthy receiver of stolen goods was at stake. Considering, however, the promises are but air, and that while that made by the peddler in presence of witness would at any time give him a fair opportunity of turning King's evidence, a thousand means of evading his own engagements might present themselves. He took the pledge offered to him and informed Joshua Brown of all the plans and purposes of himself and his excellent confederate, and all that they knew, or thought they knew, of Colonel Middleton. While this detail took place, Carlini sat by and listened, but at the latter part of the statement he laughed aloud. "'Why, what a set of fools you must be,' he said. "'My master's a Spaniard by birth, and has lived almost all his life in Spain. He was in Mexico at the time you talk of. That I can prove, and the whole story you have got up could be blown to pieces by gentlemen now in England.' The peddler bit a piece of hard skin off his thumb, which in his case was tantamount to an expression of doubt. But he said nothing, for he was very well satisfied that Mr. Mingy Bowes should be led to disbelieve the truth of the story he had heard. "'Are you serious?' said the marine store dealer, addressing Carlini. "'Quite,' said the Italian, with a scornful look. "'Your friend has made some blunder, Mr. Bowes. His Excellency, my master, has got cousins in London who have known him from his birth.' "'But do what you will. "'You cannot make him out anything but what he is. "'So, as this blackguard is going himself, you say, to Lady Fleetwood, "'the day after to-morrow, you can let him go. "'He'll only get himself into a scrape and nobody else.' "'Well, I've only told you what he told me,' said Mingy Bowes. "'But I don't think he told me the whole, "'and I did not see the inside of the book that he burned.' "'Stop a bit,' said Joshua Brown. "'At what hour did you say he was to be there?' "'At twelve o'clock,' answered the marine store dealer. "'I was to go with him, to introduce him, 
but I thought I would just come here and see the colonel myself, to have a little deal with him, if possible, in the first place. It is well you did not see him, replied Carlini, for, depend upon it, he would have thrown you out of the window. He is not a man to be frightened, I can tell you. I should think not, said Joshua Brown with a laugh. But now, Mr. Bowes, as all things are clear, and as we understand each other, I have nothing more to say, only that you must not go out of town till I tell you, and you must come and see me to-morrow morning at ten o'clock. Mr. Bowes promised. I am very punctual, said the peddler with a meaning look, and as I shall certainly want to speak with you, if you don't come, I must look for you and get people to help me. Minji understood him completely, repeated his promise with a full determination of keeping it for fear of worse consequences, and received the peddler's address, number 43, Compton Street, Seven Dials. Now mind, said the peddler, as the worthy fence took up his hat to depart, you're not to say a word to Sam of anything that has happened till I see you to-morrow. Perhaps I may then allow you to tell him what a fool he is making of himself. Perhaps I may let him go on and trap himself. Mingy Bowes was all obedience, for the confident tone of the Italian servant had greatly shaken his reliance on his friend Sam's conclusions, and his own somewhat perilous position had rendered him wonderfully ductile. A good deal chapfallen, he took a very polite leave of his two companions and left them alone to discuss the scene which had just passed. The first observation came from the lips of Signor Carlo Carlini, who exclaimed in an indignant tone, "'What a set of blaggards you have in this country of England! My countrymen are bad enough, and so are the Spaniards, but it seems to me brave and honourable to attack a carriage, perhaps escorted by a dozen or two of dragoons, when compared with this attempt to rob a man of his money by accusing him of a crime. A bandit is a gentleman to such a fellow as that.' "'There are a number of such, I am afraid,' replied the peddler. "'These things are happening every day in London, "'and I have known two or three cases "'in which a gentleman in the same situation as yourself "'has made a great deal of money, "'and set up a hotel upon the strength of some letters "'which he had found belonging to his master. "'You cannot form a notion of all that is going on "'every day in this great city, "'but wherever you get a great number of men together,' "'you are sure to gather a great quantity of rascality. "'But as to this business, we must look to the Colonel "'and see what he thinks it better for us to do. "'So, with your leave, I will stop till he comes back, "'and should like in the meantime to hear the rest of the story you were telling me.' "'With all my heart,' replied Carlini. "'Let me see where I was.' "'Oh, I remember. I was just telling you how G, the lifeguardsman, rose to be a prince and a grandee of Spain. Carlini's story continued. Spain is a very curious country, sir, a very curious country indeed. Things happen there every day that could happen in no other spot of the globe. It is like one of those things which I think you call magic lanterns, where the scenes are always shifting and nothing on earth remains steady for an hour. You may see a little ragged boy running in the street, and not long after he'll be walking about the court, a great man in velvet and lace, without anybody but himself knowing how it happened. There are only four things necessary to it, 
impudence, cleverness, youth, and good luck. Well, as I was saying, G, the lifeguardsman, in a very few months rose from nothing at all to be a prince and a minister. The old nobility grumbled and growled, and all the new people tried to stop his progress, till they found it was useless. But in the end, the old and the new, both together, bowed down and licked his feet. All this time, as I have said, I heard nothing of him, and I thought he had quite forgotten me, and was just as selfish and cold-hearted as such sort of people generally are. But I made a mistake, sir, and I think it but right to do justice to a man against whom everybody cries out. One day, as I was walking along the street in which his palace was situated, for he lived in a palace by this time, I saw a fine horse standing before the little door. There was a great door where the carriages went in, and three or four servants, all magnificently dressed, by the side of it. Just as I was going to pass, who should come out but the prince himself, in a general's uniform, all gold and feathers and jingling spurs? I drew back with my brass basin under my arm to let him go by, thinking he would take no notice of me. His eye fell upon me, however, and he knew me directly and stopped. "'Ah, Carlini,' he said, "'is that you? Why, you have never been to see me. I haven't forgotten you, and if I can do anything to serve you, I will. Come to me here to-morrow at ten o'clock,' and then he told the servants to let me be admitted. There are some people who, as the French say, suffer fortune to knock at their door, and do not open, but I am not one of that kind, and putting on the best clothes I had, I left my brass basin and my razors behind me, and went away the next morning to see the prince. I suppose there were at least twenty people in his ante-room waiting to see him, and amongst them a great number of noblemen and high officers but I went through them all, after a page, and was shown straight in. I could hear some of them say to their neighbours, "'Why, that's Carlini, the barber. We shall not see the prince for an hour, if he's only going to be shaved.' But I laughed in my sleeve and went on. I found the great man stretched at his ease in a dressing-gown of gold brocade, and I stood near the door, bowing down to the ground. But he said, "'Come near, Carlini, come near and sit down.' and he began to talk to me just as familiarly as ever. He even spoke about the silk stockings and said, "'Aye, those silk stockings may be my fortune, and I won't be ungrateful to them or you.' He then went on to speak of a great number of other things, and joked and laughed with me, till I believed the people in the ante-room thought I was telling him all the scandal of the court, as barbers often will do. But at last he began to be more serious, and questioned me about what knowledge I possessed. He had not much himself, so that I don't wonder he was surprised to find that I could read and write, speak several languages, and keep accounts as well as any contador. At length he dismissed me, saying, I won't forget you, Carlini, I won't forget you. And if ever you think have done so, come back at this hour, and they will let you in. But I had no occasion for three days had scarcely passed when he sent for me, and told me that the king had graciously permitted him to name the viceroy of the Indies, and that he had appointed a certain nobleman, whose chin, I was very glad to find, had never come under my razor, upon the condition that he gave him the nomination of his intendant, 
that is to say, a sort of steward. Now, Carlini, he said, if this suits you, you shall have the place. And he told me how much it was worth, besides pickings. You had better take it, he said, if you don't mind going to Lima, for it is the best thing I can offer you, and heaven knows how long I may be here to offer you anything. Fortune is fickle, and as she raised me up, so she may cast me down. But if you take this, you, at all events, open for yourself a new path in life, which may perhaps lead to greatness and wealth. I was very much inclined to cast myself at his feet and give him honours more than his due, but you need not ask me whether I accepted the proposal which placed me in a position that I had never even dreamed of obtaining. I was introduced to the newly created viceroy, gave him apparently the fullest satisfaction, and set out with him for Lima, applying myself heartily to learn, before I reached the shores of the new world, the business which I was likely to be called upon to transact. By close attention I made such great progress that my new patron, though at first somewhat cold towards me, who had been forced into his service, became attached to me and relied upon me entirely. During two years I transacted the whole business of his household, amassed great wealth, and as the business of my actual office was as small as the emoluments were great, I had plenty of time both to push my fortune and to enjoy my leisure. The intendant of the Viceroy was a very great man. His favour and his influence were sought for by all classes of people. A great portion of the wealth of the province passed through his hands, and enlarging my views with my opportunities, I established a bank in Lima, rendered a large house in Mexico a mere branch of my establishment, and, passing from the one city to the other whenever the business of my Antondancia permitted, became one of the greatest dealers in the precious metals to be found in all the colonies but I had fallen upon those changeful times which left none of the world's goods firm and stable. Revolutionary ideas began to get abroad, and, with a miscalculation very common in those who have been born and acted under one period while passing to another, I thought the things which I had been accustomed to retained sufficient vitality to last, even though the germs of a new order of events were destroying their roots and pushing through the ground. At all events, gratitude towards the Viceroy, who had been most kind and generous towards me, would have induced me to pursue the same course which I did follow, even if I had known that circumstances were against him. His friends would have been my friends, his supporters, those to whom I granted support. I was in the world of wealth. The power of wealth was greater than the power of authority and as, by his generous carelessness, the wealth was at my command while the authority was at his, I might be said to be more powerful in the Indies than himself. I call heaven to witness that I did not use this great power amiss. Undoubtedly, I prospered. But then came the revolution. The colonies took advantage of the weakness of the mother country, a weakness which their establishment had first caused, and which their support had nurtured. They cast off the yoke. They forgot all their former benefits. I became loaded with odium. My bank was pillaged. My property was sequestrated. My house was sacked, and I was cast into one of the dungeons of the old Inquisition, where I remained for nine months in a state of horrible neglect and privation, 
which it is impossible to describe. My food was scanty, the attendance I received grudging and unwilling. I had no bed, no accommodation of any kind. The mud in some parts of the horrible cell to which I was consigned was several inches deep and the straw upon which I slept was at the bottom soaked in water. I went into that dreary abode a healthy and powerful man, in the early prime of life. I came out a skeleton, hardly able to drag my feeble limbs along. By this time some degree of order was restored, and a show of law was established. It was necessary to try me, as I had been so long confined, and idle charges were fabricated to justify my long detention and the pillage of my property. Not even the skill and the malice of those who seek to justify wrong could devise an accusation that was tenable. My accounts were all in order, and although no person had a right to investigate them but the viceroy, whom they had expelled, they could not even found a charge upon them. As a base excuse, however, for refusing to do me justice, they declared that I had systematically denied all assistance to the leaders of the revolution. In my capacity as a banker, and after having been one of the most wealthy men of the land, I was cast upon the world utterly penniless. There are some men, however, who act by divine laws and not by human ones. I am afraid that they are to be found only in the lower portion of the middle class. There are none more cruelly tyrannical than the people, none more selfishly careless than the upper class. The latter are the best masters because in their carelessness they are generous while they have the means. The former are the worst because their minds have never been expanded by prosperity and because their passions are capricious in proportion to their numbers. But in the middle class you find the men who have lived by right and equity and are sensible of the benefits of right and equity, nay more who will follow them sometimes, even when they don't see good consequences to themselves. I wandered through Lima, without a friend, as I thought, and certainly without a penny, but passing by the door of a goldsmith, to whom I had once lent money, he called me in and made his house my home. He and I consulted with regard to my affairs. Most of those to whom I had lent large sums had fled, Others had joined the revolutionary party and were beyond my reach, but there were a few who owed me trifling debts of thirty or forty crowns, which I had no power of reclaiming, for all my papers were in the hands of the state. But nine out of ten of those who could do so paid me, and I gained sufficient money to come to Europe and to subsist for a few months. It was necessary that I should adopt some new trade. I landed in France, went to Paris, offered myself as a servant, and became courier to an English gentleman. I travelled with him for two years, made myself thoroughly acquainted with his language, of which I had learned a good deal before in Naples, and at last lost him, for he was drowned on a party of pleasure, passing from San Malo to Jersey. I then became courier to a German count, but I only remained in his service for three months, and at the end of that time, after gambling unsuccessfully, he left me to provide for myself. I now found that I was better fitted for a barber than for a courier, and was thinking of resuming my old profession, when the place of waiter at an inn was offered to me at Bordeaux. There I happened to meet with my present master. 
he did not recollect me in the least but he was kind and courteous to everybody and as the landlord endeavoured to cheat him enormously one day in a fit of spleen or indignation call it what you will i warned him of the fact and was dismissed for my pains by the good master of the house some days after i met his excellency in the streets he remembered me as the waiter though not as the banker asked my circumstances and on my telling him the whole story of my dismissal engaged me as his servant with him i have remained ever since and as i told you before a better master does not live i have been with him in a good number of different countries and i know quite well that if i act faithfully to him i shall always find him act generously towards me i am too old to push my fortunes as i did when i was young and circumstanced as i am i find although in life i have very often seen the contrary that for me at least according to your english maxim honesty is the best policy i have always found it so replied the pedlar but yet one sees people get on wonderfully by the other course now this very man who was here just now is as great a rogue as any in the world and yet he has risen from a shoe-black and made a good deal of money i am told by pure lying and rascality i wonder if that story he told about his visits to lady what you call her is true or false lady fleetwood do you mean said carlini or oh, we can easily find that out i know two of her servants very well her own footman and the housekeeper the footman can tell whether this mr bows has been there and very likely a good deal more for i have remarked mr brown that the servants of all nations in whatever else they may differ are alike in listening at doors let us walk down to the old lady's house we can be back here before his excellency returns i dare say the pedlar thought the proposal a very good one and they accordingly set out whatever was the fruit of their expedition of which more hereafter they received confirmation strong of the truth of carlini's judgment as to the eavesdropping propensities of english as well as other servants End of chapter thirty one